hang around, Keyshawn. I'm sure that this is going to be interesting to you. Okay. So you were right. discussing uh, the hands? Yes. Actually, what we were uh, beginning to discuss in general was why is it that people are reluctant to practice? Why is it that uh, whatever we do and whatever we call what we do, um, is there so much reluctance to it? Westerners call it meditation. In Thailand, they call it samadhi. Um, and that uh, generally the word that we use is anapanasati. And that the whole idea is that you have, in order to practice correctly, you've got to stop what you're doing, go off someplace, spend a considerable amount of time maybe doing something that you don't want to do with the hope of some better benefit at a later time. This is the mentality that people have, and of course they are going to be resistant to it because they're not getting immediate gratification. And yet our society is built upon the idea of immediate gratification. And so, um, <clears throat> actually, the Buddha knows about that in the first place, and this is why Anapanasati was um, taught, structured the way that it is. But, uh, how to say it? Some of the things that are really important to do can be said over and over and over again, and then people don't remember it. And so the teacher has to find some way of really impressing upon the student to look at things in a brand new way. Because the old way of doing it is actually an ordinary way. And that ordinary way is do something good and you'll get good results. And if you do something bad, you'll get bad results. This is the old law of karma. And our entire society, not just a uh, Western society, but all of human society is built upon uh, the law of karma. That the, the Brahmins came up with it formalized about 800 BC, but that was way back into history in the sense of um, doing things to gain some value. You plant crops in order to harvest six months later. So this whole mentality of delayed gratification has been part of human society forever, and yet we don't like it. We want immediate gratification. And yet when something is set up for delayed gratification, then people say, well, I'm not really interested in delayed gratification. And so I'm resistant to practice meditation because I don't want to do the work now in order to get the benefit later. And so we need to change that mentality about the practice because really the practice is, is to get the immediate benefit from your practice right now. 
that it's not supposed to be delayed gratification. Um, and yet the way that meditation has been taught in the West, the, the immediate gratification doesn't arise. And because the immediate gratification doesn't arise, people um, then say, oh, that means that because the gratification didn't arise now, but it'll eventually um, arise if I only work really hard at it. In other words, they have that perspective. If it once you for, uh, don't succeed, try, try again. You probably heard that. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I used that exact expression with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa once on this very topic. And he says, no, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. Which is back to investigation. In other words, he expects the success to be there immediately. If you're not succeeding, then look at what you're doing so that you can get yourself into the point of success immediately. If you um, are practicing Anapanasati correctly and getting the benefits of it immediately, then that means that you got it boiled down to your whole meditation is now 10 seconds. A 10 second meditation. That's what we need. So I have a question slash comment. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I was recently debating with a friend, um, you know, you know, whether or not it's, um, you know, in, in Western, say, like psychotherapy and all of this and, and also like a lot of kind of Western psychology, you know, it's thought that, you know, if you have a negative and, you know, what might even be called unwholesome, perhaps, you know, if you have a negative emotion of some kind, it's good to express it, you know, release, release it in the expression. That's why people go to talk therapy, right? Is they get to talk about, you know, I was angry about this, you know, sad about this, this happened, whatever. And then they feel better after they talk about it, right? And that's often the purpose of therapy. Um, and the the practice of seeing an unwholesome thought and then, you know, seizing it, right, and then replacing it with a wholesome one is is kind of a fun practice, and I enjoy doing that. But there's also a part of me that thinks, might it not also be healthy to kind of process whatever it is that needs to be processed? You know, if I'm angry, maybe I should, maybe there's, you know, some sense in which I should really feel that anger if that anger is proper for some reason, you know, or if it's, you know, I'm sad about something or whatnot. Maybe I should really experience that. And then after a certain point, when it's served its purpose, then you can replace it with a wholesome thought, you know, when there's no need for that anymore. You've processed it, et cetera. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And um, kind of the difference between has that kind of thing. Christianity has that kind of thing. It's called purgatory. Sure. Mm -hmm. Actually, what purgatory is, is just a uh, temporary hell. So let's talk about it from this perspective. If 
back in the day in the 1970s when psychotherapy was first getting on uh, the radar on in the market there were many different groups that were coming to the fore Esalen Institute was a big deal then with with names like um, uh, Fritz Perls doing um, the empty chair kind of thing with the psychotherapist where there's three chairs, one for the psychologist, one for the, ther- for the client, and an empty chair, which is the one who is being talked to, the mom or, or whoever you're angry at. So this evolved then eventually into what was called encounter therapy or encounter groups. And part of that had to do also with uh, pillows in the sense of taking a pillow and hitting another pillow while the person is letting their anger out. Or maybe they have some confrontations in the encounter groups. But there was an industry that built up around that. The industry was selling things like batons, boxing gloves, uh, head protective equipment like you were going into a boxing ring. Okay, because they didn't want the people to hurt themselves while they were getting their aggressions out in psychotherapy. This was a big deal. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of groups were run around. What came out, though, was that when people were going to the encounter groups and going to the psychotherapy sessions and, and bashing the pillow and that kind of stuff, they would go home and be domestically violent with their families. That once you brought that stuff up, it was like taking the lid off. (coughs) That they, through Western society and through the shoulds and coulds of the superego, were keeping the anger down and suppressed. So when they went to psychotherapy and uh, they got permission from the psychotherapist to take that lid off, now they don't have the inhibitions and so it all kind of comes out. So this is, uh, they had to actually change their ways because they recognized that and uh, that this was inappropriate. And that whole industry, by the way, died out. I don't think you can go online anywhere and find uh, encounter group or psychotherapy batons or boxing gloves. I don't think they even exist anymore. That was a phase of psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is still very common. Lots of not that type, but you know, lots of people. I, I see a therapist. You know, many people see therapists. I don't know why you said that. I mean, you just you just reiterated the kind that I'm talking about is. Uh, yeah. uh, and the encounter groups because that was the question that you asked okay it, so it, it was it wasn't about the encounter groups because I didn't know that they existed what I was asking about was I know it's that marvelous that they figured out that it was the wrong way to go and stopped sure but my point and so is, now you're yeah. recommending to start up doing that only instead of doing it uh in the psychotherapy session with batons and hitting people and bashing covers you want to do that in your own mind no that's not at all what i'm saying what i'm saying is yes that, it is yes. listen to me be quiet and listen to me okay listen to what we have to say here 
the point is, is that when things are negative, we don't need to discover or, um, how to say, uh, sort trash. Trash is trash. You don't need to be sorting trash. We're not in the, um, uh, the business of recycling bad feelings here. I've been sorting trash for the last 23 years. <laughs> I'm about tired okay. of it. And I know that this is um, part of psychotherapy. They call it, uh, in one regard, it's called psychological archaeology. To where the student and the therapist will talk about what happened way back when. And uh, uh, basically what it is, is it's generally an exposition, uh, an exposition to blame something. An example of that is the story about the guy in psychotherapy and he's talking to the psychotherapist and he has reminiscence and he says, you know, when my mom spanked me when I was four years old, I got really angry about that. And the therapist says, yeah, well, she gave you that spanking. That's probably why you're an asshole. But what they both didn't quite understand was is that maybe mommy gave this kid a, a spanking when he was a four-year-old because he was already an asshole. In other words, there's no real reason to go out and look for reasons. There's no reason to really discover uh, dukkha that any insights that you need will come without having to dwell on uh, the nature of dukkha. The important thing is to see it for what it is and then get rid of it. An example of that would be like somebody hands you a rock. It's, a, you know, something that was sitting close to the fire and he hands you that rock and you find out that that rock is about 500 degrees and it's hot, like a hot potato. What do you do with that rock? Do you start, do you stand there and watch it burn the flesh of your hand, thinking you're going to get some insight from that? Or do you immediately set the rock down? Sure. So, um, so another comment or rebuttal to that or whatnot. So, you know, I'm sure you've had the experience you know, maybe in your prior life before you became a monk, um, where you would be talking to a friend on the phone about, you know, some some issue that you have, you know, and just talking about it makes you feel better, you know, and so... Actually, no. You can talk about it and feel worse and talk about it again and feel worse. That was something that I was about to bring up. Generally, what will happen in the psychotherapy session is, is that uh, after or uh, at the end of the talking about the problem, the, uh, the psychotherapist will give somebody some reassurance. And they feel better because of the reassurance if they stay with the talking about the problem and going over the problem and going over the problem and going over the problem and over and over and over again is not going to be healthy. But the psychotherapist, if they're smart, will let the person go over the problem once or twice sure. so that then we can investigate ways out of the problem. 
sure. So, okay, and what you're recommending is exactly what you got your hand in front of your face again. Yes. Okay. When um, when most people are meditating, they don't have a psychotherapist there to move them out of their uh, misery. What they have is uh, the old psychotherapist of the parent is just going to keep them rehearsing and going over the problem over and over again, trying to find a solution to it. And the solutions were all, almost always irrelevant. But normally what happens is, is that someone will, uh, let us say, think of a solution to the problem, and because now they've got the solution to the problem, they can feel a little bit better and they can set the problem aside. Okay? But you can also set the problem aside without that uh, interim solution because whatever you thought of is going to be the, the solution is actually just thinking about the future and people can get attached to that solution and that solution doesn't work. Okay, so we're talking can, about... Can I, can I uh, step in here? Yes. Um, is this, this like speaks directly to to my new favorite song right now, which is uh, that I've been listening to a lot, almost like a mantra, which is that cheer up song that you recommended, which talks about, which talks about, uh, you know, they said I should cheer up, things could be worse. I cheered up, sure enough, things got worse. And so he cheers up, so they, they tell him that when, you know, he's like sick on the, in the bed with the oxygen tank, tank, they tell him that when he's got all the bills and he's he's expecting twins, and they tell him, cheer up, things to get worse. He cheers up, things get worse. And then they tell him that when he's getting his head shaved, about to go on the, the electric chair to cheer up, things could get worse. <laughs> and he's about to die. I mean, that's kind of exactly what we're talking about here, which is basically the, you know, the solution or whatever it is that you're here looking for. You can kind of skip over all of that and just cheer up. Things will, in fact, get worse. You're eventually going to get sick. You're eventually going to get old. You're eventually going to die. So you might as well just cheer up. That's the way I'm looking at it. That's exactly correct. Uh, Robert, you think your life is tough now. Wait until you're 85. That, in fact, sure. when people get older, they get sick. They don't like it. Um, uh, the body deteriorates. And uh, for most people, cortisol builds up. And so uh, exactly that. Cheer, you might as well cheer up now because things are going to get worse. Sure. You're going to get old, you're going to get sick, and you're going to die. And sure. if that's not bad enough, we can make things a whole lot worse by you're going to get sick and hate it. You're going to get old and really hate it, and you're going to die and, and hate that while it's happening. Okay, those are the things that can happen, and um, we need to find a way to come out of that. And you're saying kind of that, oh, if I sit there and investigate my, my troubles, that they will go away. No. While you're investigating them, there they are. They don't go away. But if you take them and pack them up in a, in a bag and throw them out, 
Now you don't have any troubles. There's a couple of comments. So one is, you know, I believe in that book, The Prison of Life, uh, Buddha uh, Dasa, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is what I meant to say, um, remarks that uh, ignorance is the jailkeeper of the prison, I believe, or ignorance is the prison. Right. right. This and, is what I'm trying to is, talk you out of your ignorance right now. Your ignorance is I should stay in that dukkha to investigate it. That's your ignorance. Well, but and it also says that you should investigate right the out prison. Of it. I, I, I'm pretty sure it says you should investigate the prison in order to get out of it. I'm pretty sure. Yes, that's... exactly. To investigate. So you should investigate. It. You recognize so it's that it's a prison. Get out of it. When you sure. recognize that it's a prison, get out of it. Investigate but but, certainly, but we're talking about that doesn't take more than a moment or two to investigate to see this is wrong, and then you get out of it. You're saying I investigated, I see it wrong, and then I investigate it some more, and I see it wrong again, and I see it wrong, and I keep playing with it wrong, while that hot rock is burning your hand, and you still hold on to it, thinking there's some value there. Vicky Buddhadasa was absolutely correct. When you see that that's a prison, when you see that that's hot, when you see it as unwholesome, that's the time to let it go, not clinging on to it, thinking that you're going to get some value out of it, when in fact you've already determined that you don't. So the investigation is really just a noticing. It's not really a proper full investigation. How much of investigation do you need to figure out the thing is hot? How much of an investigation do you need when somebody hands you a very, very hot object, you touch that, or if you put your hand into the fire, how much investigation do you need before you pull your hand out of the fire? Not much. Not much, exactly. That's what we're talking about. Not much investigation is needed. For some things, we do need to know some more investigation because in the beginning, we are ignorant enough to not see that this is hot, to not see that it's a prison. That's why it needs to be investigated. But once we investigated enough to find out that that darn thing is hot, we can set it down. So here's another question. So let's take, like, say, a very natural occurrence. Or, or cause, I should say, a very natural cause for suffering, like the death of a loved one, right? That's not so, that. The death is not the cause of the suffering. It's the loved one part. The sure. Buddha is very, very clear that grief comes from those who are dear. The people that are the closest to you are the, are going to be the source of most of your grief. In other words, the father and the son. The son can say things to his dad that will cut that poor dad to the bone. But his business partner can't can say the same thing, and the guy doesn't care, or he already knows it. All right, so... Yeah. When when you lose someone that is an acquaintance, you feel a bit sad and whatnot, but when you lose someone that's really close to you, that's when real grief comes because it has to do with, oh, poor me, what has become of me? I have lost something. Where the other guy, he's lost his life. 
So um, there is a lot of grief that comes from those who are dear. If you have already practiced Anapanasati very well, then when that grief comes up, you can see that grief as it comes up and recognize that this is not me, this is not who I am, that this grief comes from someone who has died just recently, and I can throw this out of the mind also. In fact, one can do that in advance. An example of doing it in advance would be that um, mom has gotten very ill, she's gotten Alzheimer's, they put her into a facility, and she's there, maybe hospice care. This is a good time for people to let go and say goodbye. They know in advance that mom is going to be dead in one, two months, or three months, or a year or so. And yet, all of a sudden, when she does die, it's a great big surprise. Why is it a great big surprise? Because all of this time, they've been in the level of hope. Oh, well, she's getting good care. She, she'll be okay, is the kind of things, and people are not looking at the reality of the situation, and mom's about to die. Let her go. Let her go. So that when she does die, we can say, yeah, I knew it was going to happen, and you just let it go. Okay, so what I'm talking about here is, is that it's the dearness that you let go of. When you say that grief comes from those who are dear, then we should let go. The father can let go of his son and let the boy go do what he wants to do. But when we hold things dear, we try to control them. We don't want mom to die. We don't want my son to uh, uh, <laughs> to tell me the truth about myself. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> okay, so uh, in these uh, ways we can recognize in advance that because of my love for my mom, I'm setting myself up for a great deal of grief. Most people don't recognize in, that in advance, and so when mom dies, they're just full of grief, and they don't even know that uh, that their grief is internally manufactured as an unwholesome response to someone who is dying. There is the story of uh, Kasi Gotami. Uh, when she lost her son, she carried the dead corpse around uh, to one doctor and, and uh, uh, guru and magician yeah, after yeah. another. Yeah, this is a famous story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when she got it to the Buddha, the Buddha says, you go and get me one anise seed. It's generally yeah. translated as mustard, mustard seed. It's an anise. Uh, as, uh, when you go to an Indian restaurant, at the end of the meal, they'll give you a little bowl of anise, or maybe they'll have it on the counter when you check out or whatever like that, uh, kind of a mitten. So he said, go get an anise seed from uh, each from 10 different houses who have had no death. And it took her a while to figure out that, hey, Death is all over the place. Every family knows death. If death is so common, then why am I so attached to this dead thing here? 
because this dead thing that she's carrying is not her son. It's just a dead thing. It's changed. A nature, you know. And so she yeah. set it down. This is the high, whole idea. Does How long are you going to carry a dead body around before you figure out that death is ordinary, death happens, and uh, what the issue is is that you don't like it? And you're not liking it is not going to be able to bring someone back to life. So, uh, thank you. So, how are you going to get rid of your grief? You can, in fact, get rid of your grief now so that you're free from grief, so that the people who are dear to you, when they do die, you can say bye. I love you very much, but you're dead now. Okay, bye. So, here's another question. So, this is kind of returning to the other topic about the, the processing emotions and whatnot. So, um, so you know, I've talked to you about my ceremonies and whatnot, right? My, um, you know, the the plant medicine ceremonies I've I've been to and whatnot. Okay. And, um, you know, I found them to be very therapeutic, you know, in the sense that, um you know, very difficult emotions may come up, you know, like I had, I had one ceremony where I, where I went to a concentration camp, you know, in, in my visions and my experience. Okay. And I eventually, it was very. That's a kind intense. of hell, isn't it? Yes. It was, okay. it was a total hell. And by the way, this was not with my trained shaman. This was with another person. <laughs> so this is before I found the shaman that I told you about before. Well, I hope the new shaman will take you into better places than that. But the fact is, is that neither the meditation, the medicine, nor the the shaman to take your mind into good places. This is what we're trying to talk you into practicing as Anapanasati, so that you can take your mind into good places directly. Sure, but I I will say that that is great, and I appreciate that. But I will say. I did feel great after I came out of that. I came through that, and it felt like I had let something go, you know, by going through that. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. It's kind of like, and I'm I think this is also. I'm glad let it go. I'm, yeah. But I question whether you really did or not. I feel I, I feel I did let something go. I don't know what it okay. was. Something. But something All right. was let go, you know. But. I, I would say, too, like, you know, getting back to the point on therapy, right? So you made the point that, the comment that, you know, we feel good when we let let something out in therapy because we get reassurance from the therapist. I, I agree. That's a very if big it's, part if of it's it. It's a good therapist. Some therapists will just go in and wallow in someone's misery with them. Sure. And I agree. That's a really big part of it. <clears throat> I, I would say as well that um that just the act of expressing yourself and being heard you know or like feeling things that you did not allow yourself to feel you know that can feel very therapeutic and very good and i'm curious to hear your thoughts on that experience um because that's like something in the ceremony you know where these repressed emotions come up and it can feel great to sit there and cry you know it can feel really great it can feel really good to do that you know, and so I'm curious to you know, hear, hear your thoughts on that and why it can feel so good 
to let because things go it's in this not way. liberating. Yeah. It's an ordinary joy. You're trying to, in some way to convince me that people don't have ordinary joys, and you can't do that. People do have ordinary joys. In fact, many people get a great deal of gratification out of playing victim. People get a great deal of gratification out of sitting there crying, poor me, pity party. Yeah, but it might it not fits even... In, it, yeah. No, just listen. It fits yeah. into their style of this is how I get gratification or this is how I can get someone to take care of me. This is why people go to the psychotherapist in the first place is because they don't have the self-confidence that they can clean up their own mess. And so they go to the psychologist and have their mess right in front of the psychologist in full display with the idea that, oh, if I can show the psychologist how bad I feel, he'll make me feel better. And it generally happens. Why? Because people can't feel bad that long. And so they'll have a pity party in front of the psychotherapist. They'll cry, they'll moan, they'll bitch, they'll complain, they'll hit pillows, they'll do all kinds. And at the end of it, the psychotherapist will tell something like, well, you're okay, I'll see you next week. So, so I feel like something's being missed. So I'll give you another I know. example. Of, Listen of to me. That's why you keep missing it. You keep wanting to dabble in the dukkha when in fact what you need to do is to see it and throw it out immediately. Okay, well, here's just one, one other example here. <laughs> All right, so, so let's say like creativity, right? The creative act, right? So, Creativity. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so like I like to write short stories. I really enjoy doing that. You know? Enjoy. Yeah. And, and there is something, there's a very satisfying feeling, you know, after I write a story of, okay. oh, I just created something. You know, I All just right. expressed myself. I let something go. I expressed maybe I not know. even that's myself. Why, that's why I the two-year-old will right? come running into the back, uh, yeah. into the uh, into the uh, the front room or something, and say, "Mommy, mommy, come look in the toilet to see what I did." <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. We are proud of our production, and it gets started when we're uh, when we get potty trained. That's part of potty training. Sure, but creativity, you know, but, you know, that's what potty training is all about. <laughs> yeah, but there's something about it that, that I know you that enjoy it. Like, You're seeing the gratification yeah. in it. You could have been just as gratified to sit in front of the computer and not typing a word and just say, hey, you know something? I feel so great. I don't have to write that story. <laughs> you could, you know, in theory, right? But Oh, no, 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 not in theory, but every moment. You see, you have to write the story, and occasionally you feel good, and then you feel good at the end of the story because you've accomplished something, right? Sure. Yes, there is gratification in doing. Sure. So I can see that. So you keep talking about the gratifications that you get from dabbling in dukkha, and I understand the gratifications in dabbling in dukkha. I understand that completely. Hmm. There is great gratification 
That's why people do what they do. That's why they have pity parties. Is because they get some gratification out of it. Sure. So the That's another to, example of yeah. that is that when somebody is drowning and you get an experienced lifeguard rescue person to come and save them, swims up to them while they're flailing, when they get the lifeguard there, the person will continue to flail. Then, in fact, what they see now is the lifeguard uh, is not somebody to rescue them. They see the lifeguard is just another object like a buoy or something for them to crawl up on top of while they're fighting. They get great gratification out of the fighting and the struggle. We get a great deal of satisfaction out of the fighting and the struggle. Because we, we think do. that our fighting and our struggle will save us. But a good lifeguard might have to, in fact, knock somebody out just to get them to stop struggling so that they, in fact, can take them to shore. That's the investigation that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was talking about, right? To start to see the danger here in this gratification. Uh, to see the, the gratification and the danger. That's what makes it a prison is the danger. And we have to be able to see the danger. But as soon as we see the danger, that means that we actually see the danger. Now we can get rid of it. And so uh, there are many, many mindfulness techniques that we can use that will help us to anchor or to remember to be here now. Tomrado, before you go into that, because I just wanted to get this this uh, point in, or not a point, but just because we were talking about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and because you sent me the Void Mind um, book, and I was reading that, and because we were talking about the old age and the sickness and the death, but he mentions in that, that actually you don't have to be subject to old age, sickness, and death, that if you're wise enough... No, wait a minute now, subject to is the key word here right subject to old age sickness and death means that if you're not subject to it doesn't mean that old age sickness and death will go away it's old age sickness and death will continue right along but it's okay with you you're not subject to it you're not under its thumb you know what the word subject means don't you when it yes. comes to royal royalty okay what is what is the uh, what is the big strong dude, uh, the king call other people? He calls them subjects, which means that you're subject to old age, sickness, and death. That means it's your king, it's your ruling class, it's your god. But if you're not subject to old age, sickness, and death, then you can get old, and that's okay. You can get sick, and that's okay, and you can die, and that's wonderful. Exactly. That's so. What I was trying to get at was that. Because we were talking about looking at the dukkha or like looking at the negative feelings or whatever it is. But the whole point of what he's saying there is that um, when there's no self involved, when you see the void, that there is no self here. Mm -hmm. That it's only when the self is there that we are born into being able to die and get old and be sick. Right. So when we, we make don't ourselves subject to it. These what is it that links. makes yourself subject to it is the self itself. Exactly. <laughs> and if there is no self to it, then there is no subject there. You are not subject to old age, sickness, and death. They just exist, but you don't. 
What is what the you that doesn't exist? It's the it's the one who becomes the subject of the old age, sickness, and death. So, in that regard, that's what dukkha is. Is that dukkha is only dukkha because we become subject to it. We take it on as a subject in the mind because we don't see that it's dangerous. And what is it? What's in the danger of doing? The danger is making us feel selfish. For instance, when uh, a loved one dies, it was my loved one. It wasn't Jimmy's loved one. It wasn't the dog's loved one. It was my loved one. Okay, my mom died. Not just mom died, but my mom died, and that's what it is. Uh, the grief is because of uh, the self has lost something. When there is no selfishness there, then the loss is just a loss. There's no one there to feel bad anyways. <laughs> if there is there's gotta no be somebody there to there, feel bad, right? So uh, to feel bad, then there's no bad feelings. But this has to be done at a moment by moment thing. It's not something that you can do for the really, really big ones. It's very much like someone who has done no exercise, has sat on the front porch or at a desk for his whole life, and he gets the idea, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. And he goes and buys all the equipment that he needs. He hires a surfer. Do you think he's going to get on top of Mount Everest? He's never climbed a mountain before. Do you think he's going to climb Mount Everest? He's never even climbed a hill before. Do you think he's going to climb Mount Everest? Not a chance. Maybe no. if he's lucky. Maybe, maybe if he's lucky. <laughs> uh, if he's lucky, somebody will talk him out of it. Yeah, if yeah. he's lucky, he won't go high enough to where you'll probably freeze to death. That's if, if he's lucky. <laughs> He'll quit before that. Uh, did you ever he's hear lucky. about Dave, David Goggins' first 100 no. mile? Let, let me finish this. Okay. <laughs> All right. If yeah. you have no meditation practice that's like saying that you have no mountain climbing skills at all so that when mom dies that's like climbing mount everest for most people not a chance that they can let mom go without any grief because everyone attaches to the mom mom's kind of important even to the buddha mom is important he says that if your mom died, oh no, the other way to say it is, is that if you carried your mom or even your mom and your dad around on your shoulders and did everything for her, still you would not repay her for the fact that she gave you life. That's right. a debt that can never be paid back. It's always got to be paid forward. But that's also true about the Dhamma. The Dhamma can never be paid back. It always has to be paid forward. Unlike psychotherapy, psychotherapy, you pay that back. You give, you send the, the psychotherapist to check in the mail. And then that's it. Okay, but with the Dhamma, once we get the Dhamma, we want to share the Dhamma. And so we pay it forward. But the point going back to mom being uh, when she dies, for most people, that's going to be a Mount Everest they can't climb. And so they go into great grief, despair. Some people will last a long time, weeks and weeks. They'll spend far too much money on a funeral. 
I mean, how much does a funeral actually cost? Well, the, uh, the Social Security Administration knew back in the 1940s that a burial should cost about $250. And you can still get a body disposed of for $250 or less. It depends upon whether you know the right um, Chinese uh, uh, restaurant. Sometimes they'll give you 10 cents a pound. Then you can make money off the corpse. By the way, I don't think there are any of those kind of Chinese restaurants in, in uh, uh, New York. You'd have to come to Thailand. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> that's a, that's so, a joke there. <laughs> why then do people spend ten or $20,000 on a funeral? Why do rich people actually hire mourners? because they want to make sure that everybody in the community knows how bad I feel when I've lost my mom. Therefore, we right. want to have a great big funeral with a band if we're in uh, <laughs> New Orleans. Or if it's the king's dog. I'm sorry, what? Or, or if it's the king's dog. I didn't catch that. Or if it is the dog of the king. The dog of the king? Did you hear that story about the king? His, his dog in Thailand, his dog died, and they had a full Buddhist funeral for five days. Oh. Uh, yes. That's because of the attachment, not because of the dog. Right. It's because of the grief. Look how bad I feel. And so we spend a lot of money to prove to others how bad we feel. I would go so far as to say that most lawsuits are uh, put up, not because somebody expects to win the lawsuit, but because they're trying to demonstrate how bad they feel about getting ripped off. Sure. So, so this demonstration of bad feelings is unnecessary if there are no bad feelings. So what we need to practice with Anapanasati is uh, basically li the lifting of the weights of trouble. Okay, we need to actually go to the gym in the mind to learn to find out that I can throw out little dukas. I can see little things by just thinking about the past or thinking about work that I have to do. And I can say, wait a minute, I don't have to have grief over work I've got to do. I can throw that out right now and feel good right now. Sure. Over and, and over and over again, we spend time thinking about something to do, and we don't do it. But we continue to think about it later, on and on and on. Generally, we stop thinking about something once the job is done. Sure. So one comment, please, for a moment. Um, so I think a really big part of this, and learning to let go of, say, you know, the psychotherapy approach or the, you know, experiential, you know, go through your emotions whole approach is to realize that you don't exist. <laughs> Another way of saying it, maybe rather than we don't exist, is to say that it's not important. There is actually a passage where the Buddha is talking about um, the five aggregates. 
normally we talk of the five aggregates in the sense of no self, that there is no self in the body, no self in the mind, no self, uh, excuse me, in the feelings, no self in the consciousness, perceptions, and cars. But another way of looking at it is, is that there is, because there is no self there, and the self is what makes these things powerful because the self wants stuff, is to recognize that these feelings actually are powerless. There is no real power here. Effectiveness. Okay, there is no power in consciousness. When when we realize that we are in fact, uh, we have been under the delusion that we are powerful and therefore responsible to solve other people's problems because we have the power to do so. That's part of our culture. That's really deeply buried in, in Christianity, which can be said in the following way. We know that you can't solve your problems, so instead, go solve theirs. You, we know you cannot follow your own rules, so you make up some rules for those people to follow. Sure. Okay, this is how it goes, is, is that if we can't figure out our own problem, then we can at least go and make somebody else figure out their problem. Or we, can, uh, we can't solve our problem, we can go solve somebody else's problem. This is uh, uh, deeply buried into the mentality of us. We could call that the helper mentality, which is completely different than the nurturer's mentality. The nurturer's mentality is that I'm not trying to help anybody because we're already okay. Everything is already fine. Yeah. If we can, instead of saying, uh, get your shit together, we can say, goo goo gaga. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is back to the whole point that we started with here is there is reluctance to practice because people think that there's going to be some future benefit in it. And you have just reiterated that by saying, oh, well, now that I can see that this is dukkha, let me really examine it, because if I do examine this dukkha that I have, I can eventually figure it out and I'll feel better then. In other words, delayed gratification. Let me look at this hot rock to see how badly it burns my hand. And after I can figure out how bad I can get burned, now I'll put it down. And so the right answer to that is no, if you want immediate gratification, you have to immediately change what's in your mind, and you can do that if you can remember to do it. Sure. If you so, can remember to do that, you can actually say, I don't have to think about grandma dying right now, or I don't have to think about that dead corpse in the other room right now. Mom's, mom can be in there dead all by herself without leave out here on the porch full of grief. She can lay there dead and waiting, and that's okay. And I don't have to be full of grief because she's dead. But we have to remember to do that. Otherwise, we're just going to be all full of grief. So, do you mind? I'd like to share a passage from my book here that I think you'll appreciate. The book you don't like. Uh, would you like to hear it? I don't know what books I don't like. I don't like any books, I guess. 
conditions of this is, this is the one we were discussing before. Pardon? Uh, this is the one we were discussing before, the, the Tibetan. The Tibetan uh, Book of the Living and Dying. Okay, all right. Yeah. Rob, it's before, just a book. It's like the Bible. It's just a book. Yeah, just before, a book. You, before you read the book, I wanted to, to, to talk about the, because uh, we kind of passed it, but when we said, like, the self, like, the, the thing about the therapy and about realizing that the self um, doesn't exist, and I was going to say, from what I've come to kind of see, is that the self does exist, but only when we're practicing incorrectly, for the most part, is what I, what I notice. Precisely so. Another way of thinking about it is the self is the bucket in which we carry our dukkha. That's why in particular Samapada it is listed the way that it is, is that it's the creation of the self in the woeful state that is the dukkha. That if we do not, well, uh, uh, let us say, uh, grasp and cling our way into a woeful state, then there is no dukkha. And so uh, if we have wisdom at that point of contact where those feelings arise, that I don't like it that mom died, doesn't mean that I have to grasp and cling at the corpse wanting her to come back and wanting something. I can just uh, wisely recognize that she's dead and I can take a deep breath and that's okay. Uh, so it's selfishness the... that causes the dukkha. So here's the passage to the book about, this is about emptiness, and I think it's, right. rela it's related to this whole discussion. Mm -hmm. So, look still deeper into impermanence, and you will find it has another message, another face, one of great hope, one that opens your eyes to the fundamental nature of the universe, and our extraordinary relationship to it. If everything is impermanent, then everything is what we call empty which means lacking in any lasting, stable, and inherent existence, and all things, when seen and understood in their true relation, are not independent but interdependent with all other things. Mm -hmm. The Buddha compared the universe to a vast net woven of a countless variety of brilliant jewels, each with a countless number of facets. Each jewel reflects in itself every other jewel in the net and is, in fact, one with every other jewel. Think of a wave in the sea. Seen in one way, it seems to have a distinct identity, an end and a beginning, a birth and a death. Seen in another way, the wave itself doesn't really exist, but is just the behavior of water, empty of any separate identity, but full of water. So when you really think about the wave, you come to realize that it is something made temporarily possible by wind and water, and that it is dependent on a set of constantly changing circumstances. You also realize that every wave is related to every other wave. Are you going to read and the whole one, book? One last. Okay, one, there's one last paragraph here. It's not <laughs> long, but here we go. Uh, nothing has any inherent existence of its own when you really look at it. And this absence of independent existence is what we call emptiness. Think of a tree. When you think of a tree, you tend to think of a distinctly defined object, and on a certain level, like the wave it is. But when you look more closely at the tree, you will see that ultimately it has no independent existence. When you contemplate it, you will find that it dissolves into an extremely subtle net of relationships that stretch, stretch across the universe. And then it goes on and on poetically. I bet it does, wind, okay. The, the, 
the Earth Please Academy. Please don't go yeah. on and on with it. <laughs> sure. We get, we get the point. The problem, I think, is, yeah. is that you're not getting the point. So let's go over that. The uh, the original point again is is that um, the the grief that we have from those who are dear is like that wave. Okay, that grief comes and passes away. It's there because of conditions, and the condition uh, that is there that's a part of that grief is the grasping and clinging. I don't want mom dead, and she's dead. Okay. And so poor me, I'm going to go now look for gratification in my pity party and in my grief and whatnot because uh, I have lost something. Okay, so we go from grief into pity party ignorantly. This is the prison. Once we wake up to that, we can say, wait a minute, just because mom's dead and the body's laying in the room and the, uh, the coroner hasn't even come to pick it up yet, but I don't have to feel bad because mom's dead. A lot of people say, oh, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her. Oh, ho, ho, poor me. Okay, well, mom's in the... <laughs> Bye, mom. <laughs> okay. Uh, basically, uh much of the grief that we have with uh, one who uh, is dear when they when they die or they do something that we don't like. Uh, a lot of the grief has to do with guilt in the sense of, oh no, there was unfinished business between mom and I and now I cannot do the business. I owe her something. And because I didn't pay my debts, now I feel guilty because now she's dead. And one of those would be I didn't get to say goodbye to her. Or she died in the hospital and I wasn't there to go see her. Oh, poor me. You see, those are the kind of feelings that people have and the thoughts that go with them. And when you can wake up to that, you can recognize my bad feelings is not going to help the situation at all. My bad feelings is, in fact, going to wind up having a very expensive casket and an extremely expensive funeral for no reason at all other than the fact that I'm trying to get rid of my bad feelings and I'm trying to pay for it rather than actually remove the bad feelings by investigation and recognize I don't have to feel bad right now because of mom's death. Well, you see, that's kind of like an Everest. You don't have to feel bad about the email that you've got to write. That's just kind of a little hill to cross. And so when you recognize it doesn't matter what kind of hill that you have to crawl or to cross over, the question is, can you feel good about it or are you going to feel bad about it? Your choice, moment by moment. And the more choices we make of wallowing in our own dukkha, then the more bad feelings we have. This is exactly what the issue about the Mahasi method with the dark night of the soul and uh, 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 the step six, seven, eight, nine, and ten of fear, misery, disgust, despair, and strong desire to get out of that state. These are things that meditators get into because they never were practicing correctly in the first place. So when something big happens, when an Everest comes around, 
they don't have the skills to claim it. The, from the very, very get-go, we have to work on the purification of the mind in the sense of throwing these unwholesome thoughts out. So when thoughts of grief come up, instead of it being an Everest, it's just, you know, okay, I can handle that and throw it out. Over and over and over again, we want to look at whatever we do during the day, just like in that uh, book of uh, Avoid Mind, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it, that whatever you're doing, do it with a void mind and do it well. That it doesn't matter what we're actually doing, so long as it's wholesome in the sense of not harming other people. So whatever you're doing, whatever your job is, do it well and enjoy doing it. So the example would be like, for instance, an email that has to be written, maybe to the boss or maybe you want to complain to some politician or something like that. And you sit down and you think about the email and you begin to feel bad and you get angry or frustrated or whatnot and you don't think that you're going to do you any good, then that's not the time to write the email. That's the time to sit down and do some Anapanasati and get the mind cleaned up again so that you can get yourself into a really happy state, a really good mood. Wow, I feel so good now. And now I go back to write that email, and after I get about one line of it written, I begin to feel bad again. And I say, wait a minute, I don't want to feel bad about this email. So I leave the email, go away from it, set the lid of the computer, and go off and get myself feeling good again. So that the feeling good becomes now more important than the email. If I cannot get the email done while feeling good, then the email is, is irrelevant, and feeling good is the only game in town. Once I get myself feeling good and I can go and do that email and I could do it feeling good, I'll probably do a better email than if I did it when I was feeling reluctant and bad about it. And so right. I, and I can sit and I can stutter and, and, and work on that email for 30 minutes or I can take an hour and a half of meditation plus about 10 minutes of that uh, email and do a much better job of it because I'm doing it when I'm in a really, really good mood and I've gotten myself into a good mood because I talked myself into it, practicing Anapanasati, taking deep breaths and relaxing and telling myself, hey, I don't have to write that email right now. Everything is wonderful. Everything is fine. And this is the part that you're missing. You're thinking that, oh, I've got to go do something. I've got to clean up my shit and then I can feel good. The answer is, yeah, maybe, so long as it only takes you about tenth of a second to clean up that shit. When it takes only that long, it's like, that's out of here. That email is gone. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to feel good instead. This is the part that, that you're missing. You're still stuck in the law of karma. You do something good, you'll get some good results. If you do something bad, you'll get some bad result. Now, that's sure. only true in the sense of cause and effect. If you do something to cause yourself to feel good, you'll feel good. But doing something like writing an email, complaining to some company about some politician or something like that, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. What we do have to do is the quality of the email that we're writing, and if we write an email while we're in a good state, then the email will probably be of a higher quality. So this is the point that we're making that always get your mind into a really good state so that you can enjoy this present moment 
whether you're actually writing that email right now or not. So, and so this is all back yeah. to the point of that you're reluctant to practice. Sure. So why? Because you're not getting any value out of it immediately. It's delayed right. gratification. And you need to yeah. stop delaying your gratification of uh, uh, and and bring on joy immediately. Sure. So, I and thank you for that. I appreciate that. So, one other comment related to that. Um, so, sometimes I think it can feel like joy in and of itself, you know, isn't is too simple of a goal almost. You know what I mean? Well, that's like, because you don't have yeah. any. <laughs> You're like the guy who was walking yeah. in the desert without any resources. You've got no umbrella, no camel, nothing. Your canteen has been empty for a long time. And somebody comes up and says, here's a drink of water. You'll say, oh, well, that's not enough. I need a whole lake. Therefore, I'm going to refuse your drink of water. So it's interesting. So there's another pass. You'll like this passage I I brought up here. Please don't um, read it. <laughs> you, you don't want to hear it? No, I don't. This is okay. no, but I because you're not hearing it, and you're okay. not hearing me. You're wanting to argue with me. You're wanting hey, to be I, right, and that's okay with me that you're right, but you're not. Because you're wanting to compete and wanting to be right, you're missing out on the fact that we could be joyful instead. You're looking sure. for being right and getting your joy out of being right, rather than you don't have to be right, you can just be joyful. Sure. Sure. So let's be joyful. Let's remember that you all, all you right. have to do should is I, just drop all, the books and drop all of that stuff and just be joyful. Should I, should I put on some music? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I and, un, until you right uh, until you recognize that silence <laughs> sometimes is even better. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with with, <laughs> with music. All right. That in fact, uh, um, most people who dabble in Buddhism, uh, when they hear the the precepts about uh, Nacha Gita Watida Visukadasana. Uh, Nacha is dancing. Gita is uh, uh, an interesting word because we actually have the Tara Gita and the uh, Tara Gita, which means that there are songs or poetries of uh, uh, the monks and songs that are a lot of music is Dhamma. But what the Buddha was talking about there was is that the monks don't go out for entertainment. There's a completely different uh, situation now that we have music uh, recorded. As opposed to in the time of the Buddha, if you wanted music, you had to go out at night to go to the entertainment. And having the monks out in public was what the Buddha was against, especially going to entertainment, going to shows, going to things like this. That, uh, um, that, how to say, music is built upon 
one primary thing, and that is rhythm. And that's what makes poetry pleasant, is the rhythm. And so uh, the rhythm in music would be like uh, the first, uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You hear that same rhythm repeated over and over and over again. And that's what makes music is that repetitiveness. And so listening to music, one would then listen to it ignorantly in the sense of just mere entertainment versus listening to music consciously to hear the rhythms, to hear the resolutions, to hear the music the way that a master musician would listen to it rather than um, an uninformed, ignorant uh, cowherd. Because they they need honky-tonk music. They need country-western. They're not sophisticated enough to listen to Beethoven. The Beethoven would get lost on them because they don't have the sophistication. So what I'm talking about, if you're listening to music, really listen to it, really investigate it, and uh, get the value out of it. But there is also a lot of time when you don't listen to music. And there, are t- there is time for silence. Normally what Westerners do is they fill their time and fill their void with irrelevant kinds of things. Yeah. Like uh, um, totally. uh, sitcoms and movies and uh, stuff that have no value other than something really valuable. And that is, is that movies and entertainments and things like that get them, the people's mind off of their troubles even if it's to get their minds onto somebody else's trouble. For instance, in a movie, something like Die Hard comes to mind. And while you're seeing um, uh, Bruce Willis or whoever is in the movie going around with all his actions and everything like that, we would rather live his life vicariously than to pay attention to our own problems. And so it's, it's a, an escape or release from our own problems. And it, when people then turn the movie off, their only choice is to go back to their own mental tapes that they've been playing. We're giving you an opportunity to change that, to notice that you don't have to play the old tapes, nor do you have to find an escape in movies, that you can find an escape directly by changing the content of what's in the mind from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. And in a way, watching that movie is uh, watching somebody else's suffering and misery. And so even though we're watching a movie and we're escaping from our own suffering and misery, we haven't really escaped from suffering and misery. And I don't know of a movie that would ever get uh, manufactured uh, and produced that wasn't the topic of suffering and misery. If everything was la die and happy and joy, they would put it as a, uh, uh, a children's story. Or an advertisement. So, what we need to recognize then is, is that we go around uh, in our society intentionally looking for problems to solve, and we think that, oh, if I get a really good handle on that problem, I'll have a really good solution to it. 
That's we, we the way do. that we think. The answer to that is, it's not a problem. Set it down and enjoy your life. It's not a problem. Yeah. Set it down right now. Just set it down and take a deep breath. And wow, I'm glad I don't have to solve that problem. It's not a problem after all. It's empty. You just read that to me. That problem is, in fact, just like a wave. It's subject to the wind and the water, but the problem is not a problem. It's just a wave. It doesn't really exist. It comes in the moment. It arises and it passes away. And if you get attached to it, then you're going to be in suffering. And if you just let that thought go by or you just let that uh, um, event go by, that problem, it's not a problem at all. It's just a wave. A wave in the mind. There it goes around. All. But most people will grab hold and they'll hold it and they want to ride that wave and tunnel under it and crash and wipe out and all kinds of stuff because they think the wave is real. So a couple of comments. So one is, you know, I can seem pretty argumentative, but I'm just trying to get to a deeper understanding. You know, I just want you to be aware of that. You know, that's the I know purpose that. of I know the that. argument. That's why I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying I'm to... You don't have I'm not to trying apologize. to be competitive or anything. I'm just you trying don't. to. Yeah. You don't have to. So, so I know you're said, trying. You're trying really hard, and you don't have to. You're okay already. Sure. <laughs> sure. You don't believe me yet. <laughs> not, not yet. I still have to figure it out. You know, okay, there's this one other passage I wanted to share. Let me find it. I, I opened it, and then you asked me to close it. But I think it's worth sharing. Um, and this is about why. So here's the, so here, here it is. So the question, these are called the four faults. Why is it that people should find it so difficult even to conceive of the depth and glory of the nature of mind? Why does it seem to many such an outlandish and improbable idea? Teachings speak of four faults which prevent us from realizing the nature of mind right now. One, the nature of mind is just too close to be recognized. Just as we are unable to see our own face, mind find, finds it difficult to look into its own nature. Two, it is too profound for us to fathom. We have no idea how deep it could be. If we did, it, we would have already, to a certain extent, realized it. Three, it is too easy for us to believe. In reality, all we need to do is simply to rest in the naked, pure awareness of the nature of mind, which is always present. Four, it is too wonderful for us to accommodate. The sheer immensity of it is too vast to fit into our narrow way of thinking. We just can't believe it. Nor can we possibly imagine that enlightenment is the real nature of our minds. Okay. All of those, this stuff that you have just read to me, unlike that which you read before, talking about emptiness, all of this is ordinary mind and can be set down. You don't need right. to listen to that paragraph at all. Okay. Right, right. I was saying those are or the we could go those through the them problems. one at a time. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so saying those are the faults, those are the problems, are obstacles in accepting the beautiful nature of mind, right, is those four things. Like he was saying, these are the problems, and th this is how we trip ourselves up, is with these four faults. 
Okay. Uh, it's too close. It's too wonderful. It's I, I closed it. I already forgot the other two. Never, never um, mind. We can't never believe mind. it. Yeah, we can't believe it. And it's too obvious or something like that, you know. But okay. that's the thing. Is sometimes the whole state of joy and, and and just enjoying the moment, surfing the wave, it's all it can seem too good to be true. You know, no, that was you like just the told final. me, remember the, the, the analogy that I gave you is here you are off in the desert with no resources and I come and offer you a glass of water and you say it's not enough. Right. So you're exactly opposite of that to where it's too much, it's too good, it's too big, it's too powerful. No, you're saying no, it's not enough. Joy is yeah. not enough. That was what right. you were saying. Well, yeah, I guess I was saying what I was saying back then Back then, <laughs> right, like it was 10 years ago. But <laughs> what I was saying at that time was sometimes, like, joy can seem like a hedonism almost as a goal, right? You know, like... Uh, we, we hedonism just... is what people do when they have no clue about having to, uh, how to find joy, but they desperately want it. It reminds me of a song. The name of the song or the the, uh, the first line of the song is looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love. Have you ever heard that song? No, I, That's not, what is hedonism. But... Hedonism is looking for love in all the wrong places. Do you think Buddhism is kind of a, just a really sophisticated form of hedonism? No! Listen again. <laughs> Looking for love in all the wrong places is hedonism. Looking for love on the outside. Looking for love in the bottle. Looking for love in the car. Looking for love in the other person. Looking for love in the brothel. Looking for love in the store. Looking for love in politics. Looking for love all over the place and never finding it. That's hedonism. In that regard, the, uh, which is more hedonistic, the Democrats or the Republicans? By far, the Republicans are far more hedonistic. Why? Because they're really looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> all right? So, so much for hedonism. Hedonism is exactly opposite of what the Buddha was taught, and he recognized that. In fact, there's a state, uh, passage about it in Sutta number 36. When he says, why <clears throat> am I afraid of the, uh, of the delights of first jhana? Because it is not the same as sensual desire. Why? Because looking for love in all the wrong places is completely different than finding love, period. Wherever it may be found. They're not finding it, they're looking for it. This is the quality of hedonism. And that's why it's called sensual desire is because it's wanting something that you don't have. It's almost like the guy's in bed with one prostitute and he and the, uh, the other prostitute comes into the room for some business or whatever and he wants her in the bed too. One's not enough, two, three. Ever how many? More, more, more. This is uh, looking for love. Why? Is because he wasn't really getting the love from the first girl in the bed. And so he wanted more. He's still looking for love, 
but he's looking for it in all the wrong places. This is hedonism. The Buddha says, why am I afraid of uh, the first jhana and the pleasures of the first jhana? Because it is not the same thing as sensual desire. Why? Because the pleasure that we get from the joy of having a pure mind is immediate. And it's got no cause and effect the way that, uh, let us say, no strings attached. Or the strings that are attached are all mental. As opposed to you believe that that brothel's got not just strings, but ropes attached to everything. All right. So that's the problem with looking for love in all the wrong places, is often those places have strings attached. What we need to find is a pleasure that has no strings like that attached to it at all. That we can manufacture and bring that stuff up in the mind so that you can get yourself into a pleasant state that has nothing to do with the outside world. The pleasures born of the stringlessness. But but this is this is the why it's called it a what? hedonism. Yeah. I said the pleasures born of the stringlessness. Of so, stringlessness? Stringlessness, like the lack of the string. Of the string. Oh, string, stringlessness, right, I got it, okay. So the reason I called it a form of hedonism was because the end state is still pleasure. No. I have never gone anywhere near the end state with you. I can't get you to take the first. I can't get you to put (laughs) on your shoes. And you're wanting me to teach you how to take off the shoes. Well, you just said a second ago, it was pleasure. It was pleasure on the inside. Yes, you you can't gain that. I've tasted it, for sure. Yeah. Well, taste, right. I've experienced it, yeah. (laughs) Let us say that you uh, uh, here you are, 35 years old, and you, and I talk about food, and you said, well, I once tasted it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you tasted it. Okay. So, if you did, go taste it again. Don't taste keep thinking that times. you have to look at something deeply before you can taste the, uh, uh, or before you can have joy. You have to inspect the, the dukkha. No, you only have to inspect the dukkha long enough to know that this is dukkha, not joy. And once you see that it's dukkha, not joy, you can throw it out and start to manufacture some joy. You can begin to talk yourself into feeling good, and you continue to insist upon talking yourself into feeling bad more and more. You want to feel bad. You like feeling bad. And you haven't seen the danger in it yet. Once you see the danger in intentionally making yourself feel bad, you won't do it so much anymore. There's gratification, the danger, and the escape. And so long as we see the gratification and we don't see the danger, there's no escape. This is the point about the prison and the prison of life is that you've got to see the danger in it in order to plot your escape. If you don't see the danger in these thoughts, then you don't uh, want to escape from them. But if you have, in fact, tasted joy, then you know that the, the, the normal thoughts that we have are not so joyful. Let's not have those thoughts. Let's have thoughts of joy. What kind of thoughts of joy? Everything is all right. There's nothing to do. 
there's no place to go. There's no work to be done. Everything is really good right now. Let me take a deep breath and relax and relax and relax. And so you get yourself into a state of relaxation. But you are thinking that relaxation is a goal and that you have to attain that goal. No, relaxation is not a goal. Relaxation is what you do when you stop having goals. And so get yourself into not having any goals. You got no goals. You got no problems. You got no worries. You got nothing to do. There's not there's no enlightenment that you don't already have. So why don't you enjoy what you've got? This is where the whole thing about and this is where Western Buddhism is really amiss. In this one point that the Buddha is so clear about is that one's right effort is to take unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and replace them immediately with wholesome thoughts. This is the, the major teaching of the Buddha that most Westerners miss. They think that they should be noting. Noting what? Whatever's there. Well, what's there is a bunch of crap. Yeah, well, let's note that for a while, maybe 10 or 20 years, and when we get really sick and tired of noting the crap, maybe then we can do something about it. Okay, so this is the dark night of the soul. Maybe that's what you need. Is you need a real swift kick in the back. You need a you you need yeah. to have everybody that you know die on you so that you've got enough grief that you can say, wait a minute, I don't really have to feel this bad. <laughs> that's yep. that's the Mahasi method, by the way. Is if you if you can get yourself into feeling bad enough, you can recognize, wait a minute, I really do need to get out of this. So in a way, we can think of it like this: that uh, most meditators they start at the surface level of dukkha, and the more they meditate, the deeper they go, the better they can see it. The more clear things are, the deeper into dukkha they go. The question is, how deep do you have to go into the dukkha before you can see that this is dukkha? Sure. How deep into it do you have to go before you recognize, I want out of here? And you haven't sure. reached that point yet. And I'm saying you really don't have to go that far. You can, in fact, do enough investigation to say, wait a minute, what I do see right now, I want out of this. Right. And, and, and like, then you can honest, get out of like, it right now. It's, and so basically what we're saying is the investigation is needed in order to see the dukkha. And yet most people think that they have to investigate the dukkha, which means that they haven't really seen dukkha as dukkha yet. When they actually do see it as unsatisfactory, unuseful, unpowerful, and to be avoided immediately, then they can find the escape to it. And that escape is basically, aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see that crap, and I don't want nothing to do with it. I'm going to take a deep breath and be happy right now. But this is a, for many people, a long, slow process. Many people, I know of people who uh, have claimed to meditate for 50 years. And then their next sentence is, how dare you tell me anything about meditation? All right. And if somebody says that, that that's a, an unwholesome thought. How dare you tell me about meditation? And well, here they've been meditating for 50 years, 
uh, and where has their elimination of unwholesome thoughts come from? Because that's, that's just so amazing. Is, very I've been meditating state. for 50 years, therefore, here's my unwholesome thought for you. <laughs> right. It's like, look how proud I am, how big my ego is, you know. I've been meditating. Exactly. Yeah, so it shows it goes nowhere. And, you know, it's funny because, you, know, um, you know, and I have practice on Apanasati, you know, also at Swan Mok when I was 19, but also over our time speaking the past few months, you know, and I have gotten a lot out of it. And then this kind of superego part of me would come in, you know, and then I would just rebel against that. And we, we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I I would find myself not having the resolve to do the practice. So the reason I brought this up with you today was because I felt that the reason for that is because I didn't quite yet have right view. And so I wanted to go through this with you today to develop the right view better. And it's, I, I don't know if it's completely right yet, but it's more right than it was a few hours ago. So well, I'm, thank you. I'm really glad to hear that. And yeah. so uh, let's finish this conversation off then with the point that more of the right view has to do with right now. Wherever you are, that's the time for Anapanasati, any time that you remember it. Most people think of, uh, and a, a clear example of that, a student called and said that I was watching YouTube, enjoying it, and then the thought came, I should be meditating. And then the next thought was, but I want to watch this YouTube. And then the next thought was, yeah, but you should be meditating. And then the next thought was, yeah, but I want to watch the YouTube. And then the next thought was, you're a bad meditator. You don't know what you're doing. Here you are watching YouTube. I've been there. I've had that exact, I had that earlier today. (laughs) Not with YouTube, but something else. But I've had it. Whatever it is, okay. That that means that that this is uh, the, the thou shalt meditate is part of the superego. We've made yep. it a rule now. It's yep, no longer yep. it is no longer a toy, it's a rule. Right. And we need to it's take it out really of the realm hard. of being a rule into the toy. So the next time the guy is watching YouTube and the thought, I should be meditating right now, the answer to that was and it feels really good too. And we didn't even turn the computer off or change the computer or anything. We just merely changed the focus because he really wasn't watching the YouTube in any case. In one case, he was watching the uh, he was he was watching the YouTube and then he stopped watching the YouTube long enough to have this dialogue. But the other possibility is as soon as the thought I could be meditating, the answer to that is, ah, yeah, it feels good too. You see the difference? Anapanasati is whenever you remember. Meditation is something that you've got to go do. It's important. And Anapanasati is something that you remember to do and take great benefit out of it right then and there. It's not something that you do on the floor. This is very Western mentality. The Buddha is all into any posture that you're in. He talks about it in the sense of the traditional classic four postures of walking, standing, sitting, and laying down. 
But whatever posture you're in, that's a good enough posture to take a deep breath and relax. If you're running, then sit down, or excuse me, if you're running, then slow down and walk. If you're walking, go stand under a shade tree. If you're standing in front of a shade tree, just sit down under the shade tree. If you're sitting under a shade tree, why don't lay down under a shade tree? Everything about the teaching of the Buddha is going from a state of tension into a state of relaxation. Even when that new relaxed state, you can see the tension in it, you can relax that too. And when you get down to the third stage, you begin to really investigate. You can see whatever tensions are left in that. You eliminate them and you go into a deeper level of relaxation. Everything is about uh, being easygoing and relaxed. The whole point. But there is a point when even the joy, even our enthusiasm is too much work. Exuberance, in fact, exuberance is really nice until it gets old. <laughs> sure. And so we let the exuberance slip away. But we can't start with dukkha and expect it to go into deeper and deeper relaxation. Why? Because deeper into dukkha you go, the more anxiety and the more frustrations we have. So we have to immediately, in the very beginning, eliminate the dukkha and work only in the wholesome. And then we begin to see that even these wholesome states are, are a bit of work, and we can relax even beyond that. And so we eventually come down to our own level of relaxation. What, when is it going to be finally absolutely good enough? Is when, we, is when we're very quiet, very still, everything is easy, no place to go and nothing to do, and not even the thought of no place to go and nothing to do uh-huh. Not even the thought of no place to go and nothing to do. Keyshawn, can I hear you? I can hear you. Okay, now I can hear you. All right. So I said that even we get ourselves into such a relaxed state that there is no place to go and nothing to do, and even the thought of no place to go and nothing to do is too much work. Cool. And so we get completely relaxed. So yes, there is a time when the joy becomes too much work, but we're not going to have that joy is too much work until we get finished with the dukkha. That the dukkha has to go away first, our dissatisfaction. Basically, we need to go from a state of satisfaction to more satisfaction, to more peace, to more satisfaction, deeper and deeper. This is any deeper, this is deeper into satisfaction that we go. And, And down at the bottom of it is complete equanimity. Unification of mind. So there are various levels, but the first level is this first jhana that has rapture and pity born of seclusion from the hindrances. And so we have to practice. It it also, like when you have it right now again, come on, let's have some right now. (laughs) 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 What's the 
because I had some well, once. <laughs> well, I've had it many times. I've had it many okay. times. Okay. All right. But I, this is what we practice on then. This but is what we're practicing. Say, sure, but I'd just like to respond to your point. Um, so when you said that it's too much, you're right. It is too much. You know, and this gets back to my earlier point from this, this text here when it said it, it's too wonderful. You know, because when I do go into that state, sometimes it does feel too wonderful. You know, and it's like, oh, this is too good. You, you know, too good you know what I'm referring what? to. You're, mis you're missing something. Okay. Like it's, what, like what it's I so was good saying that was the joy, the, the joy that is so marvelous eventually becomes agitating. Yes. Or it's too much work. But you're talking about that the joy in the beginning is is so marvelous that you don't even want to experience the joy before it's Yeah, it's, it's like I want to just like throw a rock in the way or something. It's like mm -hmm. enough of this, you know, like part, part of it I need, has I need a little bit of challenge here. It's like masochism or something, you know. <laughs> right. Here's what yeah. we can talk about then is, is that we need for you to find a way for you to give yourself permission to enjoy yourself. You don't have to be up to scratch anymore. You don't have to perform in order to get your benefits. You can get your benefits without doing anything. You do not have to earn Social Security the way that most people do. You could just simply be disabled. Anyway. <laughs> sure. Why work for a living when we can live off of disability? I'm unable to work. Why am I too unable to work? And because I don't feel bad enough I, to work. I feel I good. Considered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to. I've been practicing the James Brown meditation. Yeah. Yeah. You know James yeah. Brown? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel good. I feel good. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, like I knew I would now, right? Yeah, I feel great, too good to go song. to work. I need, I'm disabled. I can't work. <laughs> 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 so this yeah, is, you yeah. need to give yourself permission to relax. You don't have to do anything in order to relax. In fact, you need to stop doing anything in order to relax. What are you going to stop? All of the unwholesome thoughts that keep telling you what to do. Sure, now, this sure. is this is cultural. Some cultures are, are worse at this particular thing than others. And this one particular thing is well known in the Jewish community. That you got to perform. You've yep, got to yep. be up to scratch. You've got to prove yourself. Right. I am Jewish, by the way, Keshawn, just in case you didn't, oh. didn't, didn't know. <laughs> I yeah. don't think anybody in the United States can see the word Cohen and, and be confused about what that <laughs> word means. <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, this is very characteristic I up, of... I grew up very right close to a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn, so... <laughs> oh, yeah. cool. Nice, yes, yeah. We're a, we're a neurotic bunch, as, as you as you both can tell. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, yeah. I can see that a lot of what's going on is cultural. And it's um, attitudes and things that we picked up as, as kids. Yeah. Uh, within psychotherapy, there are three P's. Protection, permission, and potency. And right now, what I'm seeing is, is that you actually need permission to feel good. A lot of students do that. I give you my permission. It's okay with me that you feel absolutely marvelous. Every time that you remember that you can feel marvelous, you can take a deep breath and throw the uh, unmarvelous out and have marvelous. It's okay. It's not too much. You can handle all the marvelous that, that there is to handle. If there was too much marvelous, you wouldn't let it in anyway. Okay, so you can handle all the marvelous there is. But you have to, you. you have to, you have to uncover it because it's, it's just, you know, it's something really marvelous. It's like a, let us say a, a gold bar or a gold brick that happens to be just in the pig pen. And you know what sure. the bottom of the pig pen is. It's mud and all kinds of pig products. <laughs> okay. That's that's you. You actually have to go get your gold bar out of the pig pen. Sure. Because what? It doesn't take very long. <laughs> and here we are, been in the pig pen, hoping for the big uh, for the gold bar. Anyway, you're already in the pig pen. So all you have to do is just grab your gold bar and leave. That's it's that sure. simple. You can, you can just get out of it any time that you want to, but you have to have kind of permission to do that because we've been told our whole lives, you don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card. You're going to have to work to get out of prison. Get out of jail. Sure. No, you've got to get out of jail-free card. Really? All you have to do is just climb over that fence and, and get out of the pig pen. That's all there is to it. And you can do that good. in about one second's time. But you have to have permission. It's okay that you can do it. And you also have to have the potency in the sense of the knowledge that you can do it. You can get up off your butt and get out of your own pig pen, out of your own level of crap. Dust yourself up, clean yourself off, and boogie on down your life. Sure. So you need, to, you need that power. You need that potency. And you also need protection from all of those parts of your mind that says, you ought not do that. Yeah. You need to work for a living. There was Auschwitz, you know. What are you going to do about that? You know, this, <laughs> as far as culture goes, right? The answer is, I don't, you don't have to do anything. You can just sit down and enjoy your life. Go ahead, be lazy. It's okay. You have permission to do that. Just to enjoy. Now, that's the part of the teaching of the Buddha that goes directly against Western society. Don't worry, be happy, and be lazy. And then that really ticks them off. What do you mean, be lazy? You're supposed to be productive here. If you don't work, you don't eat. All right. So you have to remember that that's just more of 
the hindrances. That you don't work, you don't eat is a hindrance to the fact that you don't have to do anything. You've probably already done all the work that you ever need to do. There's no reason for you to continue to work. That doesn't mean that you don't go to the place of employment. You can continue to be employed, just don't work. Go to the place of employment with and, and find all the toys they have there. It's like a, 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 a what, a kindergarten. Sure. Got to go have to kindergarten. Ever... Go ahead and go to kindergarten, but play with all the toys there and enjoy your life. And you yeah, thought yeah, you were here yeah. to work. <laughs> uh, did you ever hear the story about the the zen master the guy with the 10,000 tools was his name and um he was very old and um and he insisted on working for his food always and the monks told him like your master you're too old and he said no work no food and um, so they went to go make him food anyway, and he refused to eat it. And he said, no work, no food. And I forget what the punchline of the story is, but I remember that, that really distinctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they say, oh, I'm going to be that old man, Zen master. I'm going to work and work and work and not eat any food. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that. Well, I don't, what do you think of that whole way, that whole I don't attitude. know that Zen master. I don't know that story. And I would assume that the master was actually behaving that way in order to teach the students some lesson or so. And it's also yeah. that he was mislabeled as master. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, it could be. There, there is a lot of people who uh, misunderstand the teachings of the Buddha. Many of them have been translators. An example of that is the last, very last thing that the Buddha said was, um, be your own refuge. And then he said, according to the translators, therefore, strive on, strive diligently. Well, striving is what Western people have been doing all along anyway. Right. And so when they when they see a poly word they don't understand, they'll just put something in there they do understand, and so they talk think that the Buddha said strive. Actually the poly word means to persist. Not to strive. Striving means like this, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, and then I'll quit a while, and then I want it and want it again. No, persistently means to clean the mind out right now. A new hindrance comes up, I see it, I clean that out too, and I'm very persistent about it. Every time I see an unwholesome thought, I throw it out. And every time I see persistently an unwholesome thought and throw it out, I can come back into a good state. This is what it means, but we, uh, but Western mentality is to strive. Guess what? You don't have to strive, but you have to remember, and that remembering over and over again is the same thing as persisting, that you keep remembering to throw unwholesome thoughts out, and one of the wholesome thoughts that it would, that you could have right then would, you know, it really is okay that I relax. I have permission. I've got a permission slip. 
I've yep. got a, I've got a, not a hall pass. I've got a, uh, a pleasure pass. I can sit here and give myself pleasure. I've got, I've got the ticket. Sure. All right, that ticket is, is, is in the sense or the get out of jail free card. That's like some sort of permission that you need to give yourself. And so I give you <clears throat> get out of hell free card. Get out of give, hell free. I give you your right. uh, joy pass that you is like a hall pass. Anytime that you get caught in joy, you can show them the hall pass. I've got permission to be joyful. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you. Yep. That's what you need is you need to give yourself permission because you haven't yet. You haven't given yourself permission. I give myself permission. Excellent. So you have to give yourself that permission every time you wake up, every time you recognize that the, that the mind has an unwholesome thought. You can throw that unwholesome thought out and come back. And one of those one of those wholesome thoughts would be like to recognize that everything's just coming in waves, that the wave doesn't exist, that water and wind exist, but the wave doesn't exist. The circumstances around the problem exist, but it's not a problem. Yep. It's not a problem, which means that I don't have to do anything. Just because the wave is coming doesn't mean we have to do anything. Sure. We don't have to ride it. We don't have to jump out of its way. Right. Because it's got no substance. It's got no power over you. And neither do we over it. Or you over it. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like, I've been reading the void mind and that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I was wondering if you recommend kind of like, like if during the meditation or what, if you're sitting down doing Anapanasati, thinking about, um, each time, like there's maybe a negative feeling that arises or whatever it is. That's what I've been able to do is like, like if I see a negative feeling, I can almost notice and recognize that this is. The, this is a set of causes and conditions that's giving rise to a self here that doesn't actually exist, and that's what I'm looking at. And when I do that, it's almost like it kind of like how it kind of like dissolves in a way when I do. It so. does. It, it it does. It just flitters right away. Yeah. Everything, in fact, keeps flittering away. And when we are in uh, a state of hindrance, we bring it back again, it flitters away. We bring it back again, it flitters away. Every thought only lasts about a tenth of a second to uh, maybe uh, 200 milliseconds, something in that, in that realm. And so we have to keep repeating it. It's going to flitter away anyway. Since, it's, since everything has uh, the quality of flittering away, the, the right thing to do is let's start paying attention to wholesome things and let them flutter away rather than paying attention to unwholesome things, watching them flutter away. Everything just flutters away. Nothing lasts. Everything is temporary. Yep. There's actually, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Everything is temporary. Everything flutters away. And because everything flitters away, that means that nothing has an internal, inherent existence. Even a water molecule is still nothing but a wave. It's a couple of things dancing. It's a couple of uh, oxygen and hydrogen molecules dancing, 
and even that dance is temporary. All you need is an electron to come by, and that'll bust them that uh, dance right up. It's called electrolysis. Right? Everything is a dance. Everything is a wave. Everything is a flow. Because of that, there's really no self there. The only time that the self exists is when we think it exists. And we think it exists when we're trying to protect ourselves. That is actually, uh, in a way, uh, the, the, the human concept of the self is nothing but a self-preservation mechanism. It's to preserve, okay, which means that it's based in fear, fear of danger. But most of our fear is false positives. Much of the things that we're afraid of are not really there. But we have a very, very excellent uh, danger uh, detecting equipment. And when uh, very sensitive danger uh, detection equipment is, um, let us say, in a place where there is no danger, the likelihood is, is that the operator of this machine is going to crank it up to even more sensitivity until it does find some, some dukkha. What this means is, is that most of our fear is false positives. We make ourselves afraid when there's really nothing to be afraid of. If you can start seeing that you make yourself afraid when there really is nothing to be afraid of, now we can have the kind of thoughts of looking around, really there's nothing to be afraid of. There really is nothing to fear right now. Because nothing exists. Because Well, nothing right now exists. The only thing that does exist will be the things that I would be afraid of. And if I can catch that fear and not be afraid, then they don't exist. The fear is because the delusion that things not only exist, but that they're dangerous. Yep. And so Keyshawn thinks about his boss and immediately he becomes afraid because he sees his boss as dangerous. No smiles there. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about an old conversation. Okay. This is how it is. Is uh, um, that we see danger where there is no danger. That is what we can investigate is the investigation to see really the dukkha that I have is because I feel afraid and there's nothing to be afraid of. And I and here I am feeling afraid for no reason at all, and that's dukkha. And when I recognize there's nothing to fear, now I can relax. Because there really is nothing to, to fear. This is how we begin to, to see the investigation, is that we can see that, in fact, that um, when the fear comes, we recognize there's nothing to fear, and therefore the fear itself is the dukkha. Most people, when they become afraid, they think, oh, I'm afraid because I'm afraid, and I know how to feel. And if I feel afraid, there means there's something to fear here. There's danger. Let me go find out and kill and slay that dragon. Let me get rid of this fear so I can feel uh, good again. 
And so now we're going around with all this fear, like Don Quixote, slashing at windmills, trying to solve a problem that really doesn't exist because it was a false positive to begin with. So a, a comment slash question observation on that. So, so then Duca is in large part the result of wrong view. Exactly. Right? That's why we so, call it. That's why the second uh, noble truth has delusion as the major ingredient. Greed, ill will, and delusion. That's it. You've got it. Sure. So, you know, when you experience grief, say, you know, your mother dies, you know, or whatnot, um, you know, the grief is because is in part because you have wrong view that, one, you're, you're supposed to feel this way. Two, right. you imagine a future in which she's not there, and that makes you sad, but that future doesn't exist, so what's the sense in imagining that? And then, you know, three, you reflect upon the past, but the past does not exist, you know, it's just the past. Four, you think she might be wherever she is, and you hope it's, it's good, you know, but she might be nowhere at all, but that's also out of your concern so that's also no that's even the best the absolutely yeah. the best place if we are actually looking for peace if we're actually looking for relaxation then death the is the to be nowhere at all that, right so death is yeah. then the highest relaxation there is that's why in buddhism it's called the mahaparinibbana it's the coolest you could be Bud. i mean if you're talking about chill out <laughs> being dead is chill <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And so mom's mom's in a wonderful place. She's dead. <laughs> <laughs> no more worries, no more problems, no more suffering, no more grief. Everything is wonderful when you're dead. Sure. And and all five of those were wrong view. All five of those I, concerns. Uh, the, I, I named like five different concerns. Every one of them was wrong view. Wrong view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty funny too. When you say that uh, um, about the coolness and the mind not being so hot, I don't know. Maybe before I used to like hope for you know having all these different experiences or whatever, something like that in meditation. But now I'm just like really satisfied when the mind is like not on fire for any anything. That's like the best. It's not yes, like in fact, when, when we meditate because we want all those meditation experiences, that wanting those meditation experiences is the mind on fire. And when we don't want those experiences anymore because the mind is cool, then we're satisfied. Hey, wait a minute. I don't really need all of those meditation experiences. When I want them, I'm on, I'm on fire. And when I don't want them, I'm cool. Yeah. Well, guess what? The worst of it is, is when somebody does have a meditation experience, the next day they want it again. More and more and more and more. Those meditation experiences don't end, and people want them. But they don't come as fast as they want them, so they, they, they want more and more and more and more. And so meditation experiences is actually a uh, looking for love in all the wrong places again. Yep. We're looking for experience rather than, hey, man, I don't need an experience. I'm good to go already. 
Yeah, and and also not only thoughts about like meditation experiences because that was like that's like a while ago for me, but more about like now what it, what it would be is that like um, sort of like any any thought that I have that it seems like is not about like right here right now is typically like gonna end in like a painful situation. <laughs> it just hurts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime we want something, it hurts. When we want something, that means that I will be better off if I have it. One step beyond that, if I'm better off, but if I have it, that means that I'm not good enough right now. And now we go down and down. Oh, poor me, I'm not good enough because I don't have what I want. And But if I do get what I want, then I'll be better. And so now we're in a state of ignorantly wanting something that we don't have. Then you start chasing. <laughs> right. That meditation experiences is one of those items on that list of wanting something that we don't have. Enlightenment is another. Wanting enlightenment that we don't have is a source of misery and suffering. That's dukkha. Being satisfied, I'm I'm really good to go. I'm I'm quite satisfied without ever being enlightened. I don't need it. Or an, the other one is I'm already enlightened, enlightened point of view. Huh? I, I said that's an enlightened point of view. Right. Exactly. That's the whole point. Yep. <laughs> that's the whole point. Is who needs enlightenment? I'm already enlightened. I don't need any enlightenment. But when enlightenment is something we don't have and we want, then that enlightenment is dukkha. And so this is why we want to uh, to gain that right view. And as we um, uh, continue to practice moment by moment, you don't have to go off and get your favorite cushion and sit in your favorite meditation place in front of an altar with candles and incense and any ubi dubi gobi gobbies and all of that ceremonial stuff is unnecessary. What's necessary is as soon as you remember, I ought to be meditating, is to do it right then. <sighs> okay, I got you. I'm meditating. I'm meditating. Okay. This is the way to do it. Immediately, as soon as you remember, and that we actually want to develop a formal practice just to help us to remember that more often. So taking 10-minute sittings, six, uh, 10 minute sitting six times a day is much, much more beneficial at building this skill of sati than sitting for an hour because the mind gets tired. Okay. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't medi wouldn't meditation though uh, provide the mind with more energy? You know, if done right, so after an hour you should have more energy, right? No, most people get into a really dull state. An hour, the mind gets tired. An hour, people. Uh, I I know that's a very Western mentality. The more is better. More is better. More is better. Longer sittings and all of that kind of stuff. No, people get dull. They go, they get sleepy. They're not breathing well. They forget. It's much, much better to do it very often. Uh, brand new. Okay, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to get myself feeling really good. Once you get yourself into feeling really, really good and can maintain that for a while, that's all you really need to do. 
And then you go about living your life until you recognize that you're not really feeling really good right now. And then you put yourself into a state of feeling really good again. Over and over and over again. You make a habit out of it. So you're feeling good all day or much of the day. Sure. Speaking of feeling really good, I'd like to feel really good in the morning. And it's 1230 now. So (laughs) I think I got to hit the hay. All right. We need to talk about that too. Sleeping on your side. I do that. Okay. Yeah. And so when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you want to do then when you wake up in the morning is get yourself feeling really good before you get out of bed. Hmm. Before you get out of bed, already you're breathing well, thinking about it. Oh, this is so great. All right. This is over and over and over again throughout the day. Remember to practice to get yourself into a really good state. Get up on the right side of bed. Hmm? Get up on the right side of bed. Okay, all right. Right. It's better, in fact, uh, always I've I've felt that the top is the right side. (laughs) Top. (laughs) On top of the bed, as opposed to under it. (laughs) makes sense anyway gentlemen well cheers okay well we'll we'll see you both i think that this has been a really great conversation and before you turn it off um i just wanted to say thank you i really appreciate our conversation and uh, uh this is for practicing and so you have my permission to go practice, to remember to practice, to let yourself feel good. Throw those unwholesome thoughts out, whatever they are. Great. That's what you know. You note that this is an unwholesome thought and throw it out and get yourself into a good state. Keep doing that and you'll begin to see how, how valuable it is. Got it. Well, cop, coon, cop. We'll see ya. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Keyshawn, do you have anything to add to add to this? Uh, I probably did like two hours ago. <laughs> I kind of forgot. All right. Well, but, we'll, we'll finish it off now because I've got someone else uh, waiting to call. And uh, we'll talk to you later then. Next time. Okay. All right. Good yeah. to see you again, too. Good to see you again. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>